Uh, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll start. Father, we thank you for this evening, another opportunity to be together, to share with one another, to hear from your word, to learn from you. May your spirit reign supreme in our lives this evening, and may you help us to understand what is uh, not an easy subject, a very complicated one, uh, and help us to do so with an ironic, a peaceful, peaceful spirit, a cooperative venture as we seek to understand your word uh, most fully. So guide and direct us this evening, we ask in Messiah's name. Uh, amen. Okay, just uh, I'm going to sort of blitz through some of the things that we've already looked at for those who are here for the first time. But then what I want to do this morning, uh, this afternoon, this evening, is I want to bank on a couple of passages that I want to look at with a little more detail and uh, see if that would help us to put some things in perspective. So what we're doing here is we're reflecting on the meaning and significance of the Mosaic Law, its relationship to, uh, to the believer, Jewish-Gentile believer. When we talk about the Mosaic Law, by the way, there are different ways to come at this. On the one hand, when we talk about the Mosaic Law, we're talking about the 613 commandments as such. We're not going to go through every 613 commandment and try to pinpoint what they all mean. This isn't a study of the Mosaic Laws. This is a, basically a uh, survey, uh, an attempt to understand the meaning and significance of the law as a whole, as one entity, as one body. The second thing is when we talk about the Mosaic Law, uh, some of the passages in Scripture are translated into English with a lowercase l. When they do that, the writer is understanding the word namas, the Greek word for law, whether it's the Mosaic Law or whether it's law in terms of a uh, principle or an idea of justice. Uh, or rule or commandment it's used interchangeably and so sometimes we need to step back and say ask ourselves what is Paul or the writer referring to in Paul's day in the first century there's no word for legalism we talk about legalism in our day and age that is what we would refer to as law keeping as a mechanism by which we gain God's favor there's no word in Greek to denote what we refer to as legalism. Paul would have used the word namas, law. And he would have to depend upon our understanding of his context to know whether he's speaking about the law, which he may not use the definite article for, or whether he's referring to law, meaning as a legal manner by which we attempt to gain God's favor, or if he wants to combine the two ideas. So he might make reference to something that the Mosaic law is included in, but it's not limited to. So that legalism can go beyond the Mosaic law, could go to any kind of idea we might uh, come up with, which we might define as necessary to gain God's righteousness. In that case, the word law might be legalism, but not limited to merely legalism as legalism, but including the Mosaic law, which if approached with the idea that if we obey it, we gain God's favor is another legalism. So the word law might be in lowercase l. And what Paul means to convey is the idea of legalism, which includes the Mosaic law as a mechanism that can be used legalistically. Is that making sense? So, you know, we have, there, there's a little give and take here. Then the third thing we need to realize, we talk about the Mosaic law, the 613 commandments, or legalism, or the law, or both and. There's also the idea of the Mosaic law as an era, a period of time. So that before Moses, while there were expectations, rights and wrongs, and perhaps even commandments, such as in the Garden of Eden, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, while laws or commandments or expectations existed prior to Moses, the Mosaic law did not. And so the Mosaic law had a point in time when it began, Exodus 20 is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, uh, 
And so the Mosaic law can be thought of in terms of an era, a period of time during which the Mosaic law is a mechanism by which we demonstrate our faithfulness to God. It becomes a lifestyle, as it were, by means of which we demonstrate our faithfulness so that before Exodus 20, the law doesn't exist. In my estimation, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Messiah, the law no longer exists as a mechanism by which we are obligated to demonstrate our faithfulness. So there is a period of time that can be referred to as the Mosaic Law, when the Mosaic Law is an expectation for the development of faithfulness. So, for example, Messiah came during the period when the Mosaic Law was operating. Therefore, he comes to fulfill the law. We'll talk about its fuller meaning, but in the very least it means he lived during the time that the Mosaic Law was a mechanism by which one demonstrated his or her faithfulness. So we would expect him to speak in light of the Mosaic laws operating. John the Mercer, the, the Baptist, Yochanan, the same thing. He exists during this time. Also during the period of the book of Acts, you have a sort of a transition period. So there's a debate going on. So do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? In, in John's time, Messiah's time, that may not have, may not have been as hot an issue as it is after because of what has transpired with regard to Messiah's work and ministry. So if we go back to Genesis when God commands Adam and Eve not to eat. That's not a law. That's a, uh, a uh, command that he gives to them. But it's not a law in the same sense that the 613 commandments are laws. Now, there's another thing you have to understand, and that is sometimes we use words interchangeably. Paul does not. So, for example, you and I use the word sin and transgression interchangeably. But Paul does not use them necessarily interchangeably. So in the book of Romans, he'll say, before the law, there was no transgression. Well, we say, wait a minute, wasn't there sin before the law? Yes, there was sin before the law. There was rebellion before the law. But there wasn't transgression in the sense that Paul is using it. Because when he speaks of transgression, he means violation of the Mosaic law. Because the Mosaic law did not exist until Moses, any violation of God's commandments before it is not transgression in the sense Paul means it, but it is rebellion and it is sin. So that's why he can say if we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. He doesn't mean we wouldn't know what sinning is. Adam and Eve knew what sin was. God said, don't eat. They ate. They sinned. They knew it. Cain killed Abel, murdered him. There's no commandment anywhere, thou shalt not kill. But he certainly knew murder was wrong. We don't know how he knew it, but he knew it. And therefore, by murdering his brother, he committed a sin. He committed a rebellious act against God and against his fellow, uh, fellow man. From Paul's point of view, when he says, we wouldn't have known this is uh, sin or transgression unless the law came. What he means to say by that is not that sin didn't exist and people didn't understand the difference, but now when the law comes, it's spelled out and it's clarified and it's made clear. And so therefore now we know with clarity, but we also have to remember Paul points out in the book of Romans that the Gentiles weren't given the law. They still stand guilty before God because they don't live up to their conscience. So in that sense, their conscience is a law unto them. It's not the Mosaic law. So I'm just trying to illustrate when you see the word law, you can't all of a sudden jump into something and say it means this, that, or the other. We have to sort of put it in the context, not only of what he says, for example, in the book of Romans, but how he also uses these terms in other works that he uses, which can help clarify what he means here by seeing what he means there. So we're looking at the Mosaic law, but we're not going to look at the laws individually. So let me just uh, take you through what, what we're trying, what I'm trying to communicate. There's a long way to go. So uh, there's a lot of ideas tonight. 
we're going to get a little bogged down because I'm hoping being bogged down now is going to help us as we move forward along along the line. So first of all, why should we study the law? Uh, It's a portion of God's word and therefore for no other reason we should study it. Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and it is beneficial for all kinds of things. And so therefore we should study the law for that benefit. We have to remember, even if we, I don't believe that we are obligated to keep the law, it doesn't mean that there aren't practical realities and applications that cannot be uh, deduced from the law. Certainly, we can still learn from the law. We can still come to understand how God might want us uh, to live, though not with regard to the particulars, but certainly with the generalities and the spirit behind the laws as they uh, were given and with regard to what God's intentions were. So many are not sure how the law is to be related to them. So it's important to step back and say, okay, let's let's talk about the law. And there are different points of view as uh, we're going to see. It has a unique connection to the Jewish people. So we as Jewish believers and we as Gentile believers who love the Jewish people, want to understand the Jewish people more, want to be more relevant to the Jewish people, it's important that we study the law because this is central to the Jewish people's existence. Whether they realize it or not is not to the point. But the reason the Jewish people celebrate the holidays they do when they do is because of the Mosaic law. And there are other issues as well. But at least for that point, uh, the law is necessary. We need to understand it in the broader context of the Messianic movement because there's a lot of of differings of opinion regarding this, some of which I think uh, we need to uh, be very clear about. And so the big question, Mark, is in relation to how is the law to be related to us is are we obligated? That's the key word. You know, if we're obligated, then uh, if we don't keep the law, we would not thereby be pleasing God. If we're not obligated, not obeying the law would not make us displeasing to God. Therefore, this is critical. Not only that, if we feel that or believe we're obligated to keep the law, the next question is how, to what degree? And then in those aspects of the law that we cannot keep, it's impossible to keep, such as those relating to the temple and other things of that nature, um, how does that fit in? And then we start rolling into rabbinic theology and rabbinic Judaism, which is what a rabbinic theology revolves around. We're given the law. We don't believe the law is fulfilled in Messiah, so we are still obligated. How do we do this without a temple? How do we do it in the diaspora of all things? And so one major body of Jewish literature is known as the responsa, which is where uh, individual communities, questions would come up. And they may be isolated communities, so they didn't have a major rabbi to talk with. They had rabbis, but they weren't most learned rabbis. So letters circulated to the learned rabbis of major cities in Europe. And these letters would come on the desk of a noted rabbi. He'd give his opinion as to what this uh, Jewish family or group or individual should do in this little shtetl over there. And those communications became known as responsa. That is responses to questions that came up. And uh, so how do we do it? And where does that all fit in? Anyway, we'll, we'll come to some of these things. So two factors, I think, contribute to our struggle over the law. One is the tendency to divide the law into parts. As, I, as we've been reflecting on it, the Bible does not divide the law into different parts. The Bible speaks of the law as the Mosaic law, not the Mosaic laws. It's a unity. James says, Yaakov says, if we keep all the law but miss one, we're guilty not of the one, we're guilty of all of it. So if we keep 612 commandments and miss one, I would give you the last one. I would say, you did 612? All right, here's a gift. And we'll, and we'll call it even. You know, I do that with my students. You got 99 out of 100 right you know, that's pretty good. I'll be gracious and count one off. You got a hundred, you know, but God doesn't do that. James says, if we keep 612 of the 613, which is a pretty good, pretty good deal. God says, 
You're not just guilty of the one. You're guilty of all 613. You're a culpable for the entirety of the law. And so when we break down the law into its, these are usually the three ways it's broken down. The ceremonial, which deals with worship. The judicial, which deals with the civil laws. The moral, which deals with what's right and what's wrong. We break it down to discuss and to talk about. But that's only because we can't talk about it all at one time. It's the same thing we do with the characteristics or attributes of God. We speak about God as omniscient, but he's also omnipotent at the same time. We just can't talk about him at the same time. So we talk about it one at a time, but we don't want to give the impression he's this, but not that, or he's this more than that. He's all of that equal. Similarly with the law, the ceremonial is not more important than the judicial. The judicial is not less important than the moral, although we would be inclined to think that way. But that's not the way the Bible speaks of it. So one of the reasons why we run into a struggle over the law, and we see this in Christianity uh, to a large degree in our churches, where they'll say Messiah fulfilled the ceremony and the judicial, but we're still obligated to keep the moral law. Now, it's true we're to be moral in our life. And that's why in the beatitude we're going to look at, blessed are the pure in heart. We're to be a moral, upright people. We're to be obedient unto God as God has called us and commanded us to be. But that doesn't mean that Messiah fulfills these two aspects. So we're not responsible for Passover, but we're responsible for being good. Both are critical and central and a part of the law. So we make a mistake when we divide the law up into parts. Another reason we, uh, and the reason why we do that is we talk about believers free of the ceremony or, or many in churches do and the judicial, but they're obligated to keep the moral commandments. And though the ceremony judicial can't be obeyed fully, they still ought to be obeyed in some, that's the key word, fashion, whatever some means. And it's different for different people. But a second error is oftentimes people elevate the Ten Commandments above the other 603. And so they say we're still obligated to keep the Ten Commandments, but we're not obligated to keep the, the additional 603 commandments. The, the, this is not how the Bible deals with the Mosaic law. And we talked about that. So we talked about the importance of the law. Why is the Mosaic law important? First of all, it's been a corrective for apostasy. It was meant to help Israel. They came out of Egypt, uh, a land full of idolatry. And now it's a corrective for that idolatrous environment in which they had lived for 430 years. We know it had a great impact because when they get to the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses is delayed, um, they're worshiping a golden calf and they're engaged in all kind of revelry. Well, whatever they picked up in Egypt was being manifest at Sinai. So it, it served in one respect as a corrective for apostasy. S further, Israel up until the giving of the law was a family. It was a family made up of 12 tribes. They had grown into a very large family, but they were a family. It's not until they're given the law that they become a bona fide nation of people. It's then that he's, they're called the nation of Israel because they now are given the law. Now, I said before, the Mosaic law, sometimes it means the 613 commandments. Sometimes it might denote, denote legalism. Sometimes it might denote a period of time during which the Mosaic legislation is to be a manifestation of our, uh, of our life and our loyalty to God. It's also a covenant. The Mosaic law was one of five covenants God made with Israel. So Israel, when they were made into a nation, they were made into a nation by God establishing a covenant with them, which is also another way that the Mosaic law uh, is to be understood. And Deuteronomy tells us that the Mosaic law would make Israel famous. It would bring notoriety to Israel. In fact, what Moses writes is 
uh, they will, the nations will see that Israel's God is near to them. Not like their gods that they have to go uh, cutting themselves and crying out to God and hoping or crying out to their gods and hoping that their gods would hear them. Rather, he says, Israel's going to be made famous. And one of the things that's going to, Israel's going to be noted for is their God is near to them. And they don't have to go through all of these kind of gyrations to get God's attention because he is their husband. Israel is the wife of the Lord. And that parallel seen in the Brit Hadashah, where the believers are referred to as the bride of Messiah. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel is the wife of the Lord. Well, at what point did she get married? The prophets tell us at Mount Sinai, when the law was given. And the Mosaic law was a ketubah. It was a marriage license or a marriage covenant. And thus, Israel is seen as the wife of the Lord. And when Israel goes after false gods, she's breaking her ketubah. She's breaking her marriage contract. And she is going after false gods. And she is seen as committing spiritual adultery. And the reason those terms are used by the prophets is because at Mount Sinai, she was married to the Lord. And that marriage was solidified by the Mosaic Covenant. And thus the Mosaic Covenant is more than just laws and what I described before. It is a covenant between God and Israel. All that you say we will do. They enter into a marriage bond. And therefore Israel is loved by God. And is chosen by God, elected by God, and Israel is, the Jewish people, are expected to live faithfully before her, before him. And uh, now, I started out by talking, and this is where I want to just take a, a little detour along this way. We talked about the relationship of law to grace, because so often we hear in our churches that they are co contrasts, and they are, cannot be intertwined in any way. The biblical reflection, the biblical idea is a little more subtle than that. To be sure, there's a contrast, but it's not a harsh contrast, and it's not a contrast where there's a wall dividing the two, which I, wa I want to show you. First of all, but with regard to grace, we have to remember that the law was given to Israel as a gift. She did not earn it. Now, the rabbis want to always push the limits a little further. Why was Israel chosen? Why was Israel given the law? They have to answer that question. And in order to answer that question, you're forced to find something of value or worth within the receiver that would motivate the giver to give the gift to that uh, individual or nation. So in Jewish thought, there's all kinds of way, reasons why Israel was worthy of the law. But the Bible is very different. The Bible expresses that Israel was unworthy, that the receiving of the law is really not the point, but rather the giving of the law as a gift is. And thus, Israel did not deserve the law, but God set his love upon her. And in Deuteronomy 7, simply says, why did he do that? Not because you're the greatest of all or the wisest of all or the most powerful of all nations, but simply because he says, I loved you. And thus it's undeserved. The giving of the law is a good thing. And that's why I want to uh, sort of uh, smooth out the tendency to contrast the two. Because the giving of the law is a good thing. The law was a gift from God. And God only gives good things. And so in James it says, you know, uh, as the father of lights, that every good gift comes down from the father of lights and with whom there is no turning or shifting shadow, something like that. Uh, but Israel doesn't deserve it. It's given as a gift. And thus Deuteronomy 8 speaks of the law as a gift from God. And the law, and this is what we talked about to some degree last week, the law does not annul any features of the Abrahamic covenant. So what Paul is going to say is that the law is added alongside the Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, they are distinct from each other, 
and not dependent upon each other. So the Abrahamic covenant stands alone. Now, this is important because, for example, in one respect, the issue of circumcision, we oftentimes think of the, the issue of circumcision as a commandment from God in the Mosaic law. And it is. But it's also a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, which is apart from the Mosaic law. So when we think of the act of circumcision, you can think of it in the context of the Mosaic law, or you can think of it in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, and they have two separate ideas. So when we deal with Gentiles who come to faith, do they need to be circumcised? The answer is no, because circumcision is given to the Jews to whom alone the Mosaic law was given. But if you ask the question about Jews, whether they believe in Messiah or not, should they be circumcised? The answer is, in my opinion, yes, they should be circumcised. Now you would say, but Gary, I thought you said the law was fulfilled in Messiah. We don't have to obey it. And I would say, yes, I do believe that. But circumcision is found in the Abrahamic covenant too. And so in my view, a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, believer ought to be circumcised, like if I had a son, I have had a son, and I would have him circumcised in the context of the Abrahamic covenant because it's a sign that he's a member of God's chosen people. The Mosaic law, circumcision served a different purpose. It served to indicate one's uh, subservience to the law or one being bound or binded to the law, one coming under the commands of the law. But circumcision in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant has no such thing. There it simply says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant belong to me. I'm a part of that body. So the Abrahamic covenant is distinct from the Mosaic law, though both given to Israel, though independent of each other. It's very important we keep our eyes and uh, our minds on that. Now, I mentioned the Abrahamic covenant. I see it as an umbrella covenant. That is to say, there are three main aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. That is, it involves promises God made to Israel, to Abraham and to his descendants. One of those promises is that he, Abraham, and his descendants would inherit a land. Genesis 15 tells us what the land consists of. In the north, it's the Euphrates River. In the east, it's the Jordan River. In the south, it's what is referred to today as the Wadi El Arish. And in the west, it's the uh, Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. So one aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is I'm giving you and your descendants a land that is yours. It is your possession. Now, when Israel is obedient to God, they, they live in the land, they enjoy the land. If they're disobedient to God, he scatters them from the land, puts them into exile like Babylon, like Assyria, like today where we are scattered to the four corners of the earth. The fact that God scatters his people, and even if other nations dwell on the land that is given to Israel, like the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans, or be it Napoleon or whoever it might be, the Arabs during the Arab conquest, whoever, or the British, whoever may dwell in the land, never possess the land. It's always Israel's land given to them, but they might not enjoy the benefits of the land because of their disobedience, and they might even be cast off the land because of their disobedience. But the Abrahamic covenant promises it is their eternal, everlasting possession. The second aspect to the Abrahamic covenant is the, is the promise of a descendant and descendants. He says, I'll multiply your seed as the stars in heaven. But he also says, in your seed, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So there is to be a second aspect of the covenant is the promise of a descendant and descendants. But we want to focus on the descendant. And thirdly is the promise of blessing. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse thee. And in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So a third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is blessing. Those are the three major components of the Abrahamic covenant. A land, a descendant and descendants, and blessing. 
Now, why I say this is an umbrella covenant, because God throughout Israel's history will take each one of those individual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant and to solidify them, to enlarge them and to more permanentize them than they already were permanentized. He makes separate covenants with Israel regarding each entity. So he promised them a land. But then in Deuteronomy, I'm going to say 32, 33, Moses writes of another covenant God makes with Israel. We'll call it the land covenant, which is where God reinforces what he said to Abraham and then binds himself by a separate covenant to give them that land. The Abrahamic covenant would be enough, but God wants us to know, I mean business, this is certain. I'm going to make a separate covenant regarding the one entity of the promise to Abraham. In the past, and certainly other writings, they'll call it the Palestinian covenant. That was before the whole conflict with the Arabs and the so-called Palestinians and all of that. So we'll bypass, we'll do an end run around the term, and we'll just call it the land of Israel covenant. And that's what Deuteronomy 32, 33 is about. So to Abraham, he promised him a land. Then later in Israel's history, he makes a separate covenant about the land itself. And that sort of enlarges it. It more solidifies it. And it makes it more definite, more permanentized. The second thing I mentioned was the promise of a descendant or descendants. In David's life, I'm going to say 1 Samuel 7 and maybe 1 Chronicles 17, although I always get these passages mixed up, but you can check it out. God has Nathan make a promise to David in which he says, you will always have a descendant to sit on your throne forever. And he says, he will inherit your three key words is throne, dynasty, kingdom. He says, yours will be the kingdom. He'll sit on the throne and you'll always have uh, a descendant or your dynasty. The reason I point out those three things, because when Gabriel, the angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter one or so and announces to her that she would give birth to the Messiah, she says, and his name will be great. And he will reign on the throne of his father, David, of his kingdom. There'll be no end. And the third point that that I said before, all three aspects of the Davidic covenant are restated by Gabriel to Mary regarding the birth of Yeshua. So now God makes a separate covenant with David based on what he said to Abraham to solidify it, enlarge it, permanentize it, make it more detailed. And then the, the blessing aspect, we call that the Davidic covenant. And then the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, Jeremiah 31, he says that he would make a new covenant with Israel. That new covenant is the covenant you and I have particularly entered into, Jews and non-Jews, today because it is inaugurated, it is initiated by the coming of Messiah and the completion of his work. In the new covenant... It's made with the house of Israel, but Gentile believers in the Messiah of Israel share in the spiritual blessings that are associated with the new covenant. To say that the new covenant is operating today does not mean to say that it has no relevance to the future messianic age when the Messiah returns and all Israel is saved. Romans eleven twenty five. they shall all, and as Jeremiah says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So there's a coming a time when the new covenant will be fulfilled in fulfill in completion with the entire nation of Israel. Right now, we're seeing a portion of it fulfilled with regard to the faithful remnant Jews who believe and to the Gentiles who benefit from the spiritual blessings of that same covenant. Now, I say all this, I'm taking some time with it because I want you to get the significance of the Abrahamic covenants, the most important covenant made with Israel of the five, because the other three, the land of Israel covenant, the Davidic covenant and the new covenant are based on the Abrahamic. But you notice the Mosaic law covenant is completely detached from the Abrahamic and it is set alongside. And as Paul will say, it does not annul any of the benefits of this covenant. 
Now, the reason that's important is because there's another distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. A conditional covenant is a covenant that says, if you do this, then I will do that. And God says to Israel, if you do this, then I will bless you. But if you do that, I will then bring judgment, etc. But with the Abrahamic covenant and the covenants attached to the Abrahamic, they are all unconditional. They have to be unconditional because they're attached to the Abrahamic and the Abrahamic is unconditional, which means Abraham didn't have to do anything to receive the benefits of the covenant. God simply said, I'm doing this for you. Now he said, leave your family, go to the place I will show you. Abraham goes, and when he goes, he says, now you see all this stuff? I'm giving it to you. The unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant is particularly pointed out in Genesis 15, because the covenant is solidified by the sacrificing of animals. In the ancient world, an animal would be sacrificed, the parts of which would be split up, and the two members of the covenant Whatever promise they're making, I'm going to sell you this land. And so uh, I and the person who's a part of this legal uh, document or this legal uh, promise, we would walk through the parts of the animal together. And as we walk through the parts in the presence of of witnesses, I would tell him, you're going to get this land uh, and the dimensions, blah, blah, blah. And he's going to say to me, and I'm going to pay you X number of dollars. He now is, in order to get the land, he's got to give me the money. And he's committed to doing that. It's like signing on the dotted line in the the face of a uh, judge or a lawyer. It's that serious in the ancient world. But what happens in Genesis 15 is Abraham separates the parts of the animals, and then he falls asleep. When he is asleep, God alone, in a pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory, goes through the two parts of the animal, promising Abraham, I'm doing this for you. Abraham asleep doesn't say anything to God. Why? Because he's not obligated to do anything. It's purely an unconditional gift and promise. The Mosaic law is another animal. It's not unconditional. It's not connected to the Abrahamic covenant. And it is, has other aspects to it we will see that distinguish it just for the sake of argument the abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant the mosaic law is a temporary covenant it's not for all of time and i'm going to try to help you understand that as we get further down the road but we still have to lay out some foundation pieces before we can You know, we don't want to jump all over the place. We want to do this orderly and constructively so we build a foundation that is understandable. But we only have so much time. And so that's where it gets tricky. The law is contrasted, however, with God's grace. Also, it's not only a manifestation of law. It's all uh, of grace. It's also contrasted with grace. But it's not contrasted in such a harsh way that they're seeing, seen as incompatible with each other. And this is what I want to share with you. These three passages show the compatibility, though distinctiveness, of the Mosaic Law as a law reflecting uh, law as well as grace. So I want to take us to, so if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 1. Now this is not on your outline at all, because I didn't have time to then transfer it to that. But you can turn your paper over and you can write this stuff down. Now in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, John makes five major points. And they sort of ascend. They get more and more uh, important. I don't know if that's the right word, but they certainly bring us closer and closer to the majesty and glory of God. Let me just put down for you these five points. The first point he makes, found in verse 18, is that God is invisible. And so he says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So God is invisible. We can't see him. John has 
is trying to help us understand the importance of the incarnation of Messiah. But secondly, in verses 16 and 17, he says, though God is invisible, we can't see him. What we can learn about him, what's revealed about him, we find is revealed in the law. So in verse 16 and 17, he says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, I don't think he means to say there's a great contrast here. He's only trying to show a distinction, though the distinction may be great in certain degrees. But they're not incompatible. So what he's saying is God has revealed himself in the law. We're going to come back to this in a minute. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua. That's not to say that there was no grace or no truth in the law. Right? There is grace in the law. And there is truth in the law. But the law was a witness to grace and truth. Yeshua was that grace and truth about which the law spoke. So to that degree, they're different. They're related, they're compatible, but the law is not Messiah. The law is a witness to him. And therefore, in that sense, they are contrasted. But they're comparable because the law is not going to witness to what's not true. The law is, is witnessing to what is true. But the thing that is true is greater than the thing that witnesses to it. And so 16 and 17, this is the ascending points. God's invisible. We can't see him. But the law is given. And now we learn something about him. The third thing that John tells us in verse 14 is that God became a human being. He became a man. We have seen his glory. All of a sudden he becomes seeable. The word became flesh, that which was invisible and about which we only had a witness in the law has now become visible, tangible, touchable. And so he's kind of giving this ascending idea, you know, it gets better and better. And so now he's become a human being, a man. But not just any man. He's a particular man. He is the one who is born of a virgin, the one born in Bethlehem. It is in Yeshua and in Yeshua alone that we see God. Now, that's not to say we can't find God in other places like the Bible. But what it means is we cannot see God any clearer than seeing him in Messiah. That's the clearest revelation of God we have and will be given. That's why when we are before him and it says we will see him as he is, now we're seeing the fullness of God to the degree to which we can see his fullness. When they saw him, they saw his glory veiled. And that's why Isaiah says, we did not recognize him, we did not know him. He came as a shoot at a tender ground and we had no form nor comeliness that we would recognize him. It doesn't mean he was ugly and he was scarred. That has nothing to do with it. What it means is, God cannot be seen in all of his glory. And when Messiah came the first time, the times when we could see the glory of God reflected in him were limited, such as the Mount of the Transfiguration. Three disciples saw him and they were blown away because he was transfigured in all of his glory. But that was only a small moment. For the most part, when he was seen, he was seen in a way that was where his glory was veiled. But nevertheless, God was seen. He did raise people from the dead. He did heal them. He did do messianic and rabbinic miracles that authenticated his claims as being the Messiah. He did teach like no one else. He doesn't teach like the scribes and Pharisees. He's different. And so they see him as unique, to be sure. And so the clearest way we see God is through Messiah. And no other place can we see him as clearly, as accurately, as truthfully, and certainly nowhere else can we see his grace more greatly manifest than in his death in our behalf. And so in verse 16, he then concludes this section by saying, so God came to give us grace. He's always giving us grace. 
The law is a giving of grace. The placing of Adam and Eve in the garden is a giving of grace. The saving of Noah is a giving of grace. The giving of covenant to Abraham and his descendants is a grace. By bringing Israel out of Egypt is grace. By giving the Mosaic law is grace. It's always grace. But grace comes to a pinnacle when Messiah appears. But that does not take responsibility off our shoulders. To as many as received him, gave him the power to become the sons of God, children of God. We must receive him. So there's this tender balance between the grace of God, the electing grace of God, the fact that when we get saved, we say, thank you for saving me. We don't save ourselves. But yet on the other hand, we must receive him. We must accept him. We must acknowledge him. It just doesn't happen. It happens in some kind of mysterious, interconnected way between God's energizing, regenerative grace and our responsive acknowledgement of him and what he's done for us and our crying out for his mercy. We'll never unravel that. I remember in one of my Bible classes when we were talking about predestination and mankind's humanity's free will that the professor likened it to railroad tracks you know you stand on the railroad tracks they're different predestination free will but as you look into the distance all of a sudden they sort of come together and so somehow they are part and parcel of God's working we just can't see them right now because we're here in the track but down the road when we're with them all of a sudden Somehow it's going to come together. So we can't unravel everything about God or even everything about God's plans and purposes or even everything about God's plans and purposes as revealed to us. It's still kind of uh, mysterious and intriguing and investigative. So uh, 117. So I just wanted to give you these five major points. Now I want to run through this because I don't want us to get bogged down too much. Uh, And I'm sorry if I'm not... Uh, taking a lot of questions now, but I, I will give a shot. I just want you to see some things. In 117, so while there's a contrast here, I don't think it's harsh. It doesn't mean that the law of Moses is contrary to the grace and truth that has come through Yeshua the Messiah. But this do, And it does not mean that the law is not gracious or truthful. So that's not what John 117 means. But grace and truth came through Uh, Yeshua. It doesn't mean that the law of Moses is contrary. It doesn't mean that the law of Moses is not gracious or is not truthful. But in John chapter uh, 3 verse 14, we get an idea uh, of how the distinctions are meant to be understood. So in John 3 14, you see how Yeshua utilizes the law to affirm his, uh, who he is. So in 3.14, went a little too far, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Moses does something gracious and truthful that points to the grace and truth of Messiah. Now, Moses didn't know that. He was just putting up uh, a snake on a staff for people to experience healing. But as we look back with regard to what Messiah has done and with re- what regard to what Messiah says, Moses was doing something more, though he didn't realize it at the time. He was doing something that pointed to Messiah, that just like this snake that is lifted up in the wilderness, that if you look at it, you would be healed. There was nothing about this snake. There's nothing magical about the snake. There's nothing being encouraged about worshiping a snake. It was all about faith in the revelation that God gives at that time. God through Moses says, if you look at the snake, I'm going to heal you. So what should you do? You look at the snake if you want to be healed. Why? Because God's prophet told you to do that. Just like in Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah tells Ahaz, Ask a sign. Now you say, but the law says never test God. Don't ask for a sign. Well, that's true. But when a prophet tells you, 
who's speaking for God, I want you to ask for a sign. I don't care how high it is in the sky or how deep it is in the earth. The world, the universe is your oyster. Ask for anything and make it good so that you'll know it's my hand and not any other way that this could have happened. Ahaz in self-righteousness says, I'm not doing that. So what does God say? He's now not happy with Ahaz because he didn't ask when he was told to ask. And he says to Ahaz, well, then the Lord himself, you know, could have just said the Lord's going to give you a sign. But when he says the Lord himself, he means to emphasize this is a sign that God's putting together. And I'm not happy that I'm doing this because I told you to do it. And so he says the Lord himself will give you a sign. And he comes up with a, with a pretty tough thing. A virgin is going to give a child. Now, we can't go into all of 714. I'm only drawing a parallel. When the prophet says in the name of God, ask for a sign, as uh, uncomfortable as that might be, we have to do what God has told us through his prophet. When Moses says, I want you to look at the snake, someone may say, hey, listen, I'm not worship. I didn't ask you to worship. I asked you to look. And if you look, I will give you healing. Similarly, what Moses was doing was an act of grace. If we just look to Messiah with our hearts now, not exactly the same. If we look to Messiah, what he's done to us uh, for us on the cross, and we acknowledge this is exactly what the prophet said he was to do in order to provide salvation, then we'll see the grace and truth of Messiah in what he has done. And what Moses did pointed to that grace and truth. My point is that when John says in 1.14 that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua, it's not a harsh contrast. Moses also showed grace and truth of the Messiah, no less. And therefore, John does not mean to give us a harsh distinction between the two. In John chapter 5, verse 46... Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So again, when Moses wrote in the law, part of the law was grace and truth of the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy 18, when the Messiah comes, you're to believe on him. He will be a prophet like me. And you're to believe him. And if you don't believe him, well, then it will be required at your hand. When he says that he would be a prophet like me, what he means to say is the thing that made Moses unique as a prophet was that God spoke to him face to face. Now, that's a metaphor. It's an expression. God doesn't have a face because God doesn't have a body. God is spirit, Yeshua told us. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Yeshua has a face. The second person of the triunity, the word made flesh, has a face when he took on human form. But prior to human form, he doesn't have a face. He is immaterial. He is spirit. When he appears as the angel of the Lord, yes, he could be seen just like angels can be seen if they manifest themselves. But God in his nature is invisible. We just read that. And he is spirit. So when it says that um, if you uh, when it says that Moses spoke with God face to face, it means that Moses heard from God directly without an intermediary. So he was unique among the prophets. And therefore what we needed to look for was a Messiah, not like Jeremiah or not like Isaiah, but like Moses, who had an intimate connection with God uniquely to him. We don't know all about what that means, but we see it displayed in Messiah about whom the Father speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased or hear him. So Moses, Messiah is saying, Moses spoke about me. So when Moses spoke about him, he was speaking truth and he was speaking grace. So the harsh contrast is really not there. There's a harmony, though a distinction. 
in John chapter 6, verse 32, he says the man in the wilderness was a gracious gift of, not, of God, but it wasn't the true bread. The snake on the pole brought here on the staff brought healing, but it wasn't the ultimate healing we needed. Those people still died later on, but the healing Messiah will give us will be such that we will never die. That's what Yeshua says to Mary or Martha, right? With uh, Lazarus, what he says, he that believes in me shall never die. Doesn't mean we won't taste death, but ultimately we will have eternal, everlasting life. And so similarly, the, the snake on the staff was an indicator of health and healing, but it wasn't the ultimate health and healing. Messiah on the cross would be. Similarly, the man in the wilderness was not the true bread. It was still bread, and it was still a gift from God, but it wasn't the reality of grace. It pointed to grace. It was a foretaste of grace. It was a witness to grace. That's what the law is like to Yeshua. It is in harmony with yet distinct, because it's only meant to be a witness to the Messiah. It's only meant to be a foretaste of the Messiah. It had a temporary purpose. And once its purpose is fulfilled and completed, as Yeshua said he would do, it no longer has that purpose for us who've been brought to Messiah. And therefore, we're no longer subject to it or under its authority or obligation. That's Paul's point in a nutshell. We're going to see it. We're going to see it more particularly as Paul teaches it. Now, in so the meaning of John 1.17 is the law was not the reality. Just as the snake was not the reality. Just like the bread was not the reality. It was not the reality. It was real. It wasn't the ultimate reality. It was a witness to it. It wasn't the embodiment of grace and truth. Yeshua is the embodiment of grace and truth. Yeshua alone is that embodiment. And that's important. Him alone. Nothing alongside of him. Nothing added. It is he alone who saves. It is he alone who sanctifies. It is he alone who makes us holy. It is he alone who reconciles us. It is he alone who redeems us, who redeems us. It is his work for us. And that's what the gospels want to emphasize over and over. Let me just go, go through this. The law was a witness to grace and truth. Yeshua was the fulfillment. Not, he wasn't the contradiction of the law, as he says in Matthew 5. He was the fulfillment of that which was a witness to him. So just like all the prophets, they gave prophecies of the coming Messiah. They were witnessing of him, but not until he comes does he fulfill it. The law was a witness to the coming of Messiah. And once he comes... He comes to fulfill it. That's what Matthew 5 says. I came not to destroy the law. I came to be its ultimate fulfillment as it was intended to be for us. Now, this is a more complicated passage. So I that's why I wanted to get to it. And uh, maybe we can open up this door because it's getting a little warm. Um, we're now a quarter to nine. So we're spending a lot of time, but... You know, and they're complicated issues and they're pieces of the puzzle that have to be kept in in check. So let me see if I can get us through some of this, because this is this is now a little more complicated than what we've just looked at. But look at Romans chapter six. Verse 14 is this key phrase where it says, for sin shall not be your master. We can't go through all of Romans 6 and 7, obviously, but they're critical to this discussion. But this is what I want you to say. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. That's what we're going to look at. So now the word law here cannot be anything less. It could be more, but not less than the Mosaic law. The reason it can't be less than the Mosaic law is because he's contrasting it with grace. 
And as we saw, as we seen what the writers are doing, that we just saw John, that there is a connection between law and grace. So if grace, by grace, he means that which what Messiah has done for us by law, he must have in mind the Mosaic law. There's another reason why Mosaic law must be in mind, because if you look at chapter 7, keep in mind, the scriptures don't have chapters and verses, right? They're just written as scroll in a scroll. We put chapter and verses just to, you know, clarify. This is where I want you to turn. But chapter 7 flows out of chapter 6. And in chapter 7, he quotes Mosaic laws. He quotes commandments. Just wait. He quotes commandments that God has given. So by law here, he must have in mind the Mosaic law. But we're going to, we'll see more. Let me just go on, Sarah. I, I know, I, I know, I know, I know, Sarah, but you ha, you ha, but I addressed that earlier. I said that you'll see it with a, sm, a, a small L or a capital L because, because there's no word for legalism. And Paul wants that to be in mind as he addresses the law. But you have to remember, there's no capital letters here. The word not, but I know in English, they'll put a capital, but that's interpretive. That's the person's interpretation of it. Yeah, but I, I just need to get through this and then we'll, we'll have some. So Romans 6. We need to f- figure out what the phrase under grace means. And this is important because the phrase uh, under grace only appears here and in verse 15 in the entire Brit Hadashah. So we don't have other places to go. It's only here. I found that to be quite interesting. But on the other hand, he also uses the phrase under law. But that phrase he uses five or six times in some other places. So if we're going to understand what under grace means, it's going to be because we can understand what under law is because we don't have any other place to go for under grace. And it is the contrast to it. Because he says, you're not under law, but you are under grace. So what, what is the distinction he's bringing out? So take a look at Romans chapter 2. Here are the different places you'll find under, under, uh, under law. So I just want to give you a taste of this because we're not going to be able to go through all of it tonight. In Romans chapter 2, in fact, Romans chapters 1 to 3, Paul wants to illustrate that we are all under sin. He wants to say we're all guilty before God, We're all sinners. And he says that later in Romans 6. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in chapters 1 to 3, he wants to illustrate Jews and Gentiles are both violators of God's standard. In in chapter 1 and part of 2, he illustrates that the Gentiles are because they do not obey their conscience. They do not obey what God has written, as it were, on their hearts. But when he gets to Romans 2 and 3, he wants to say the Jewish people are guilty because they don't obey the law. So all are sinners for different reasons. But nevertheless, we're all sinners. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is writing to the Jewish people. He says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. He means Gentiles. They didn't sin because they disobeyed the law. They sinned because they didn't obey their conscience. And they're found guilty. But then he says, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So who are those who are under the law? Well, those are the Jewish people to whom the law was given. So the law here means judgment. Because he says they'll be judged by the law. But what's interesting is the Greek word here is not but, it's not by, but it's the Greek word dia, which means through the law. So Paul's real point is not that the law will serve as a judge, but God will serve as a judge and he'll use the law to judge us. So those who have sinned under the law will be judged through the law. They're not judged by the law. They're judged by God. Just as the Gentiles are judged by God for not living up to their conscience, the Jewish people will be judged by God through the law. The law will be the benchmark 
that he will use when dealing with the Jewish people. The law is not the judge here, God is. The law then means condemnation for those who have it and do not obey it. Because he says no one will obey it. And those who are under it will be judged through it. He doesn't say saved through it. They will be judged through it. Now keep in mind, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He studied under Gamaliel. He has no axe to grind. He's experienced something and has something revealed to him that has totally realtered his understanding about God and God's expectations. Remember, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute believers in Messiah when Messiah met him. And that radically changed his whole perception of grace and his whole perception of who Messiah is and what God is doing. What Paul is pointing out here is that people will be condemned, not because they have the law or not, but because they have sinned. That's really important. People are judged by God because they have sinned. The question is, how does he judge their sin? In the case of the Gentiles who were not given the law, they will be judged on the basis of their conscience that they did not live up to what they themselves knew was right and wrong. If the, with regard to the Jewish people, he says they will be judged for their sin because they were given the law, but did not obey it. And thus it will become the benchmark for God's judging. So, okay, so given that, you know, we've got about 10 minutes or so, uh, let me put this back here. I'll, I'll leave that up. And if you have any questions, you can ask on those matters that we have looked through. But you just need to understand there's so much stuff to get through. Uh, and I really want, it to, I want to try to uh, address as much as, it, as I can. And to give you enough to kind of, you know, whet your appetite and